I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man no one in america is above the law we were specifically designed to be a nation of laws and not men one of the unique things about america is that we have three co-equal branches of government each checking the power of the other at least in theory none may become more powerful than the others Our founders brilliantly set it up so that the courts, being answerable only to the Constitution, keep the executive and legislative branches in check. Of course, this has frustrated both the legislative and executive branches, though my impression is that historically the judicial branch has proved to be frustrating more often to the executive, the presidency, than to Congress. Certainly seems to be the case now. This historic factor has not gone unnoticed by the recently ascendant right wing when the court system, including the Supreme Court, has stopped a rogue president like Nixon or Trump. The anti-Republican forces of either moneyed interests or the religious extremists or both, they do get angry. And a result of paying attention to this since the rise of the Tea Party The rightist forces have concentrated like a laser on filling courts across the country and at every level with judges who have shown themselves to favor the president and polluters at the expense of legislatively enacted regulations. And these judgments have encroached severely on equal justice under the law. At least that's my impression. Now, the president is not without precedent in believing he is above the law. Concerns have been raised as to whether or not We are still a nation of laws, as our founders intended. Can President Trump's power really be checked? Has the court system been so stuffed with religious nationalists that the executive has morphed into what our founders fought against, a dictatorship or a king? Does Congress have a right to see what Donald Trump prefers they not see? Here to shed light in this area... Uh, the state of congressional oversight and subpoena power that is so crucial to whether America is still able to sail on as a republic, I'm pleased to have with us Stan Brand, who served as the general counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives from 1976 to 1983 and is law professor at Penn State. Thanks so much for being with us, Professor Brand. Good to be here. Well, I was in my 20s during Watergate when Congress and the president went at each other. Though there was the famous Saturday Night Massacre when the president fired the special prosecutor, if my memory serves me correctly, eventually Nixon was forced to turn over the tapes. He finally obeyed the law. And, of course, that was the end of his presidency. Now we have a president, Donald Trump, who appears to have less concern for the laws, the ability, even than Nixon, the ability of Congress to have access to potential evidence is quite the political football. Trump is acting as if his records, which may be evidence of wrongdoing, are untouchable. Unlike Nixon, Trump seems to be acting as if he has an absolute right to cover up. 
To me, it looks as if he's openly obstructing justice, which, of course, is itself a crime. And though there, are, there is a lot that Congress and the public would very much like to see, there are many examples it's really easy to get lost in the reeds, especially for non-legal types. At the heart of what's going on now, you write, Professor Brand, the Supreme Court heard arguments on May 12th in two cases concerning congressional demands known as subpoenas for materials that President Donald Trump claims are intrusions into his private affairs and are not legitimate uses of congressional power. End of quote. Well, there's a lot there. Please tell us about those two cases and the legitimate uses of, of congressional power. Who's to say? So if you could tell us about those two cases and their importance. Thank you. Yes, they concern uh, subpoenas from uh, several three congressional committees for records relating to his bank records at Deutsche Bank uh, his and his company's uh, information and his personal tax returns, which a congressional statute purportedly gives the House Ways and Means Committee the right to obtain. So he's um, contested not only the uh, substance of the subpoenas, but his if you will, his amenability to be subpoenaed at all while he is president. And he's attempted to stretch the concept of executive privilege over materials that previously had not been thought to be covered. And those are the two issues which the court has not directly confronted until this point. Two two examples, one of which you gave, which have been uh, cited as precedents. One is Nixon versus the United States, where, as you pointed out, President Nixon asserted executive privilege over tape recordings of conversations in the Oval Office between he and his aides, which were subpoenaed by the special prosecutor in the prosecution of Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and the other uh, presidential aides who were accused of crimes. And the Supreme Court came down on the side of the special prosecutor and said that while the president does have a privilege, for communications, confidentiality of his communications with mm-hmm. states, that can be overcome in a specific case where the court needs them for the administration of justice, in this case, a criminal court, a criminal case. And he lost that eight to zero. Um, and so that's the one precedent. The other precedent is the Jones, Paula Jones case, where uh, Paula Jones, a private citizen, sued uh, President, then President Clinton for sexual harassment based on uh, actions that occurred prior to the time Clinton was president, when mm-hmm. he was governor of Arkansas. And the court basically said there that no, the president is not immune from a private de- uh, deposition in a case having nothing to do with his official duty. So those are the two precedents that the court is was grappling with in these two Trump cases. And, and the, 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 what are the uh, specifics in these two cases? Well, the the subpoena for the bank records um, from his business. The, see, let me just see if I got it right. His business prior to becoming president with Deutsche Bank, correct? correct? Okay, correct. All having nothing to do with his official duties, and what he is saying uh, in those cases is that the Congress has no legislative purpose in seeking these records, but is rather simply uh, pursuing him for his. Uh, actions, you know, as president, even though these records are not on their face covered by executive privilege, and he hasn't asserted executive privilege. The House of Representatives has countered and said, no, they're very relevant 
to our our legislative function in supervising uh, or writing statutes that could impact the financial disclosure that presidents are required to submit under the Ethics in Government Act, or in the case of the tax returns um, that are relevant to all kinds of questions that they are considering with respect to federal law. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the those are the two opposing positions. It uh, how he can say that this business that occurred uh, before he became president is still uh, protected uh, because he's the president. I, boy, it's interesting to me. Uh, how rare is it that the Supreme Court has taken up questions about the power of Congress to oversee and check the power of the president? Like, you know, uh, Trump is declaring that these, this is not a legitimate uh, inquiry. I mean, he's declaring what's legitimate and what's not. How significant are these two cases on the matter of the locus of power? Yeah, well, they are cases of what lawyers call a first impression, because despite Uh. 240 years of struggles between the Congress and the president, the court has never really uh, issued an opinion respecting a direct confrontation between Congress's oversight power and the president's assertion of immunity. So we have cases where the court has uh, outlined the broad power of Congress uh, to investigate pursuant to its legislative power, but there's no, no been no direct case uh-huh. on point between Congress and the president. The Nixon case was not involved with Congress. In fact, um, the, the Congress, through the Senate Watergate Committee, sought those same tapes in a case called Senate Select Committee versus Nixon. That was huh. the Irvin, so-called right. Irvin Committee. And what happened in that case was that the Court of Appeals basically turned down the Senate and said, you haven't shown a demonstrable need oh. for these records in a, in a legislative capacity. The grand jury certainly has the right to them because the grand jury has to ter- determine guilt or innocence. But what you do is much more general in approach, and you don't need to get the gory details of who said what to whom to write legislation. And that, uh-huh. that's what the Trump lawyers have seen. Now, that's only a court of appeals decision. That's not a Supreme Court decision. And so the, but the Trump lawyers have seized on that as a basis for saying the Congress has no demonstrably critical need for the president's personal papers. And, so, and some of the justices in the oral argument were troubled by that, including some of the liberal justices who asked, well, well, what about the Congress's authority to get the president's medical records to write legislation? So there, there is some uh, new ground going to be plowed here mm. one way or another. Wow. That's exciting. It's always, uh, as a former uh, worker in a law factory, also known as the New Hampshire State Senate, uh, it's, <laughs> it's nice to have precedent. It's really hard when there is no precedent and and what is legitimate and what is not yikes this is interesting stuff yeah and it's first you know it's first impression it's hard it's hard to believe that it's taken 240 years for the supreme court Ah. to get a case directly on point but you know most of the time and and this goes to a serious question here which i think the public misunderstands and that is there's one thing to talk about the law, and there's another to talk about norms. 
and, and what this president has done as much as anything is push the envelope on the norms and and take to court a lot of questions that have lain dormant or unanswered for years. Mm-hmm. And what most presidents are reluctant to do is, to, you know, they don't want to test the norms because they're afraid of the political fallout. Mm-hmm. This president has no such inhibition. <laughs> and so it's not just a question of what the law is. It's a question of how far he's willing to push to get an answer that previous presidents have been reluctant to do. So the case I remember, because I represented George Stephanopoulos, among others, in the Whitewater scandal during the Clinton years, Uh was the fact that at one point the independent counsel uh, statute, which had become something of a thorn in the side of every president, Democrat and Republican, was allowed to lapse by the Congress because – they were fed up with the cost and the extravagance and the extent and time involved, and they let it lapse. Well, President Clinton determined to sign a new authorization of that law, which in the end was his undoing. Um, he was afraid yeah. that to to you know let the statute lapse would be a political mistake for him, and so he signed the law. And then that was his, you know, that was the basis that Ken Starr used to uh, recommend his impeachment. So, you know, where a president has no political constraints, at least in his own mind, uh, and pushes the envelope, the result is what we have, I think, with President Trump. Oh, that's lovely. The, the Manhattan, I mean, there's state law and federal law. The Manhattan district attorney issued a subpoena for Trump's business yes. records. And as you point out, Trump is fighting that one, too. What's the status of that? Don't all citizens of the state of New York, where he was a citizen, don't they all have a legal obligation to turn over business records if subpoenaed? What is his argument here? Yeah, his argument there is essentially the same, that while he's sitting president, uh-huh. all of this should be deferred. Now, the interesting thing when you listen to the oral argument on that case, it, and it presents separate issues, it presents what we call issues of federalism. That is the division between the state sovereign uh-huh. and the federal sovereign. And here it's a state prosecutor speeding the records. Ironically, most of the justices across the ideological divide were much less sympathetic to his position in the Vance case, where they, you know, there's a, there's a deference to the criminal process in our system. And what they were worried about is the power of the grand jury has always been to get every person's evidence absent some legitimate claim of privilege. And there, I think the president is on much weaker ground than he is even in the congressional cases. And my reading of the oral argument, you can never predict, but my reading of the oral argument is that that one is likely to go against him. And is that, that's before a, uh, the, the district attorney uh, in Manhattan, in, correct? In Manhattan, so, correct. Which, and with, and as, a, as you pointed out, the case that the district attorney is making is not that he needs this information, you know, for some broad legislative effort. He's investigating the possibility that crimes were committed with respect to tax returns and tax laws and other laws 
in the state of New York while Trump was a private citizen in New York. So he's made a, uh, you know, he's made, I think, a more compelling case for why he needs those records. The the district attorney has, yeah, I would think. And of course, Trump couldn't be pardoned for that if, uh, because it's, you know, a president can't uh, affect uh, uh, people breaking state laws. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking at, uh, are we a nation of laws? Uh, is the rule of law still effective? Uh, what power does President Trump have to uh, avoid living by the law, by the law, like the rest of us? Our guest is Stan Brand, who is a law professor at Penn State and uh, served as general counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, you mentioned uh, grand jury material. What about congressional access to the grand jury material that Robert Mueller used? Who has a legal right to see what was redacted there? And I would, that's a big issue, I would think. Yes, and that is an issue that goes back, as a lot of these do, to Watergate, where the grand jury, uh, at the request of the House Judiciary Committee, which was commencing impeachment proceedings against Nixon, requested that the grand jury provide them with uh, the the secret materials in the grand jury. And that went before Judge Sirica. Judge Sirica approved it. It went to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals approved it. Under a exception, there's a secrecy rule that applies to all grand jury proceedings at the federal level called Rule 6E. And that rule basically makes all of what occurs in the grand jury non-public and not accessible, except it has a couple of exceptions. And one of the exceptions it has is for disclosure preliminary to a judicial proceeding. Uh-huh. And what the court held was that the, unlike a, a legislative investigation into writing laws or seeing how existing laws work, impeachment was a judicial-like proceeding, more than it was a legislative proceeding. And in fact, the terms of art in the Constitution, talking about judgment and trial in the Senate, um, is, uh, you know, is what the court used to decide that these materials could be given to Congress, and they were. Now, the, the D.C. Circuit, in this case, in the, in the Mueller case, mm-hmm. has held that the, by a two-to-one ruling, that those materials that the Judiciary Committee has been seeking in, into the redacted and secret portions of the grand jury, mm-hmm. certain of them, are available to the House Judiciary Committee under that exception. The Department of Justice uh-huh. went to the Supreme Court and got a stay of that, pending a decision about whether that case will also go to the Supreme Court, and we're waiting to see what happens there. And eventually, in our discussion, I'm sure we'll talk about the makeup of the current Supreme Court. You know, with Nixon, it was eight to nothing that, he, yes, he had to turn it over. And, boy, there's some different personalities on there, which does make a difference. When, although, go ahead. although three of his appointees were on that court. Well, so, oh, oh, that's... Yeah, where three I'm of with, Nixon's... Blackman, Berger, and uh, one other, um, Powell. So... 
you know, uh-huh. and it's interesting that you raise the Watergate analogy because I lived through that too. I was working on Capitol Hill for Tip O'Neill at the time Good in law school. Yes, and um, the the you know the conventional wisdom at the time was, well, Nixon, you know, Nixon will win at least the conservative judges that he appointed. And as so many presidents have lived to learn, uh-huh. once they put people on the court, they really become independent. The court ruled against him eight to zero, an opinion for the court by Chief Justice Berger, who we also appointed. So this notion that somehow the ideology will save Trump right. or, you know, result in a decision in his favor, I think is is mistaken. Um and at least historically has not been the case. You know, when President Truman uh, issued an order to seize the steel mills right. during the Korean War in the famous steel seizure case, uh, and the prediction was, well, his his justice, Vincent, who we put on the court, will, you know, bail him out. And, of course, we all know the court ruled against him and said he had no authority under statute or any other power inherent in his right. office. To do that, so you have you have to you have to think about what is likely to happen here, and will the co- will the court act in some institutionally right. uh, preservational way uh-huh. so that it's not seen as a partisan exercise? Well, while we're on the subject, I would think that uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who was under so much fire, I have no idea, but I'm I, I wonder if he might kind of go out of his way to show more uh, 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 being led by the law and by precedent than, uh, than by President Trump's personal interests. I, I mean, you're right. It's, he's independent now. But, uh, I mean, a couple of those guys we know. But uh, I don't know about Brett Kavanaugh. He may, he may try to prove that he's not such a bad guy. I'm, I could well, be- he, he has <laughs> some history there. In fact, this came up in the course of his confirmation, he he wrote a law review article as a, um, a twenty years ago, uh, extolling the Nixon case as something that was a a paradigm example of the Supreme Court acting as neutral arbiter oh. as it should, and so people always pointed to that and said, "Well, you know, is he gonna is he gonna stick to that or is he gonna wander off?" Uh, and right. and support Trump. Now these cases, as lawyers say, aren't on all fours. Um, oh. And reading the tea leaves is always dangerous with the court. You know the 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 Obamacare case is a case in point where True. everyone anticipated a five four defeat for the constitutionality of the uh, you know Affordable Care Act, and then here comes Justice Roberts joining the four liberals and upholding the statute. Yeah. So. One never knows. One never knows. That is for sure. Uh, and, you know, some of Nixon's appointees were, it turned out to be uh, fairly decent. Now, when Congress impeached this president, I, I couldn't figure out, quite frankly, why they did not include what appears to me the obvious breaking of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Trump seems to be flaunting that law. Could you explain well, that, please, and straighten me yeah, out? Yeah, I... I think part of that was timing. I mean, the the House Oversight Committee was involved in a very extensive investigation into his violation of the Emoluments Clause. And in fact, 
some of what they subpoenaed in the case that's before the Supreme Court has relevance to whether they would legislate more in the emoluments clause context. What happened was that while that investigation was proceeding apace, the Ukraine uh, matters arose, and this conversation between the president and Premier Zelensky came up. And so I think the Democrats in the House, I don't want to say they got sidetracked, uh-huh. but they saw that as a much more cogently explainable set of facts to justify impeachment as opposed to the more convoluted financial workings of the emoluments clause, which by its very terms sounds, you know, odd and archaic um, language used by the framers. People, you know, what's an emolument? It's a gift. An emolument is a gift, yes. It's a gift. It's something of value. Um, And that's, you know, that's a 1787 word. But um, it has the same meaning as it has today. So, but they, but they hadn't really developed that fully enough. And here comes the, here comes the whistleblower complaint from the CIA and the Zelensky call, and this whole notion of Trump importuning an ally, who, by the way, is has a four hundred million dollar uh, appropriation hanging over his head for right. aid from the United States. And so they seized on that as a a more suitable way to attempt to bring this president to account, and the emoluments clause has faded. Now, that is still in litigation. In fact, the Fourth Circuit just reversed a panel of the Fourth Circuit, which had dismissed the case. So it's now live again. Excellent. (laughs) Not that I'm biased or anything, but I certainly... You know, I I like that we are a nation of laws. We're supposed to follow the laws, and uh, so that that emoluments clause, uh, the, the the case is where where is that in the court system? It obviously hasn't gone to the Supreme Court, but yeah, it's in the Court of Appeals. In court the of Appeals Circuit. Okay, and it's it's alive. So um, you know, and when when we say, and and this is something that I struggle with, even with my law students. And obviously, for the for the layperson, this right. is hard to understand. When we say we're a nation of laws, that's just the beginning, because then you have to determine well, what yeah, is true. the law? <laughs> and when you get into these nerve center constitutional separation of powers cases, it's not always clear because a lot of these questions are are new and haven't been resolved. Yeah. So that's that's the difficulty. Uh, and. Uh... And you know, I'm thinking of, of emoluments. You know, there's the Trump, uh, what used to apparently be the post office in D.C. Uh, is the Trump Hotel now. And uh, clearly, uh, uh, foreign dignitaries often stay there, pay more money, but stay there uh, seemingly like they want to get on Trump's good side. But his family makes money from that. It seems like an obvious violation of the law to me. Well... Yes, but it's all predicated on the fact that Trump has not recused him, has not divested himself of these of these uh, properties that he owns. Had he done that, there would no be no real question. But in his deciding ah. to retain ownership and allegedly recuse himself from the decision making process, he tried to further insulate himself from uh, you know from the charge that he was violating the emoluments clause. And that's 
sort of an issue in some of these cases, which is how direct does the uh, payment have to be since this clause has never been interpreted in our history. Oh, great. <laughs> well, that'd be fun. You know, and, and of course, one thinks uh, lawyers uh, do make a lot of money. They charge a lot of money. And Trump s- believes he has endless supplies of money, I think. And he also has a de- Department of Justice working on his behalf. I think it, well, I would say anyway, uh, and that, you know, cuts, the other side has to pay their lawyers as well. So there's that whole thing too. I mean, equal justice, well, yeah, but. (laughs) I mean, there's another element here which hasn't been talked about as much because people are focused on, well, you know, who's right and who's wrong legally. There's another factor here, which is, I think, tremendously important, which is delay. Yes, so people delay. will say, well, well, you know, the president brings all these cases. Yeah, it takes two and a half years right. to get a case through the district court, the Court of Appeals, to the Supreme Court. And in that time, uh, he could get reelected. Or right, right. He, so, so the notion that somehow he is doing this purely because he has belief that his legal position is justified, I think that- the lawyers made a calculus that – these questions are novel. Some of them are, to be candid, not frivolous, since there's no controlling case law. And so let's play it out. Let's run the let's run the string, and see what happens by the time these cases. And look what's happened in the House of Representatives, where these cases have now stretched out yeah. for years. Well, uh, and I was asked this back in in 2017 when he was inaugurated and said, well, people said, well, you know, the Congress is going to go get this stuff and go to court. And I said, well, once you're in court, you're on the court schedule and you're in the judicial world. And the judicial world is not known for alacrity. Um, None of these cases can be pitched to be what we call time of the essence cases. Uh So they go into the normal process, which is, you have to develop a record. You have to develop the law. You have to have argument. You have oh, to yeah. have a, a reasoned decision. This takes tremendous amount of time, and uh, you can try to expedite these cases, as, as some of them have been, uh, but it still takes years. Yeah, it, it does, and time is certainly uh, on Trump's side. It delays yes. clearly help Trump. He, he can delay things as much. It's, it's a perfect tool for him. He doesn't care. How it comes out, as long as he gets reelected, that seems to be his focus. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, and the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the law, the basis, the foundation of our democratic republic. Uh, how does the law apply to the president? Uh, what kind of precedents are there? Uh, are we going to be? Able, is are the laws going to be able to uh, catch up? with this particular president. I have no idea. I worry a lot, but I don't know. Now, you did refer a little bit to the Ukraine situation. Using the power of the state to bully a foreign ally holding $400 million in aid up, you know, as, as a, a sort of Damocles, uh, using the power of the state to bully a foreign ally to dig up dirt on a political opponent. Had the jury 
in the case, not been the Republican-dominated U.S. Senate, was there not a strong legal case against Trump on this? And are there not laws against such acts? But again, the question is, how do you apply those to a sitting president? And uh, this, again, this is something that I've gone through with my, with my students in great detail. Um, the best way to explain it is really to use an analogy uh, involving a thing called the speech or debate clause, which is the constitutional immunity written into the Constitution by the framers to protect members of Congress from prosecution or being called to account for their legislative acts. And there have been a number of famous cases involving, in fact, one that I argued in the Supreme Court, involving a congressman from New Jersey, Henry Hostosky. And what the court has basically said is where the action is within the definition of the duties laid out in the Constitution for the official, they can't be used in a prosecution against them. Um, and this is this is where the Trump stuff gets tricky, because his function, as in the Supreme Court said, the sole organ of foreign policy, allows him to operate in this area. And the question of separating his official acts from his, uh, you know, motives for doing so is, is very difficult from a legal perspective. So. The, you'll remember the whole uh, uproar about his firing of Jim Comey, allegedly to dissuade him and and retaliate against him and prevent him from you know conducting uh, official investigations into his conduct. Well, yeah. the the head of the FBI is a presidential appointee. He's he's appointed pursuant to the president's Article Two powers. Well, it's very hard then to separate his motives in firing somebody he's constitutionally empowered to fire from his actions in self-interestedly protecting mm-hmm. himself. And so it gets murky yes. because the courts don't want to subject public officials as a general proposition uh-huh. to being questioned in court about what they are doing officially. That's seen as a a, uh, a violation of what the framers set up as the separation of powers. Now, the one remedy that exists for that is impeachment. And, of course, yeah. Trump was impeached, but he was acquitted. Right. And so, uh, yes, he was held to account. He j- it's like taking a criminal case to the jury, where the jury uh-huh. decides not guilty. Right. Now, this jury happens to be <laughs> politicians. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, Bill Clinton was impeached. Even even some Republicans found the evidence wanting. Yeah. In this case, and this has nothing to do with the law, for some reason, mm. all the Republicans except one right. marched in tune and acquitted him. Yep. Ah, yes. Justice. But that's our, you know, that's our system. And and yes, President Trump is testing the system. Uh. Absolutely testing the system. Uh, by the way, not just in the area of congressional oversight. He has, uh, as we all know, diverted funds from defense appropriations to build the wall against right. direct limitations placed on on, on them by Congress. Uh, he's done other things that have tested the limits. You know, 
when I lived, when I was working in the house for Tip O'Neill, we had uh, what Arthur Schlesinger called the reaction to the imperial presidency, uh-huh. Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. And we passed landmark statutes, the War Powers Act, yes. attempting to limit his ability to commit foreign troops without congressional authorization. Really? We had the Budget Control and Impoundment Act, which restricted, because Nixon had impounded federal dollars willy-nilly, and the courts had mostly mm-hmm. uh, sided with the Congress on that. We passed the statute. Well, that was 1974. Here we are 30 years later, and we're in the same battle because these things are cyclical. They, mm. they ebb and, the powers ebb and flow. We haven't had a, you know, we haven't had a dominant Congress really since Watergate. Huh. Yeah, that, I can see your point. That does make sense. I, I kind of wish there were more, especially when it comes to uh, making war, but that is obviously not going to happen. And, and you talked about uh, the president using defense money, uh, you know, taking some of it to, to build his wall. There's the so-called CARES Act, which doles out a very large pot of federal money that's uh, regarding uh, uh, helping with regard to the COVID-19 crisis. What has he done regarding each branch of government's ability to decide who gets what? What about that? Well, he has um, basically stated that certain of the provisions Congress wrote into the the CARES Act for oversight by inspectors general and the Congress itself to make sure that there is not rampant fraud, waste, and abuse that he's going to ignore. Uh, Again, presidents have asserted all kinds of things in these signing statements, uh, you know, they've signed the law and then they turn around and say, we're not going to follow part of it because we think it's unconstitutional. And that battle's really been going on since FDR. He has mm. raised it to a new level. It remains to be seen how far he's going to go with that and whether it's going to work. I happen to think the signing statements are uh, basically null and void. I mean, his oh. choice is to sign the law or veto it. And if he signs it, he's stuck. He can't selectively decide which provisions he's going to enforce and which he isn't. He's not and king. in fact, um, when, when the Congress gave the president in the Clinton administration a line item veto, yeah. and that case went to the Supreme Court under the title of uh, Clinton versus New York City, uh, the president lost, and the court said, "No, you 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 can't change the structure of the Constitution uh, by a by a law that purports to give the president a line item veto, a veto over individual yeah, aspects of a of a particular law. He vetoes it or he signs it, and um, so so these things have all." The seeds for these disputes have all been laying well prior to Trump. Again, he has just pushed the envelope Mm -hmm. in in ways that other presidents have been reluctant to do. Yeah, he does have some, uh, as my people say, chutzpah. It's rather impressive. And talk about, uh, uh, you know, we mentioned the coronavirus a little bit and the doling out of money. There's been a lot of questions as to, you know, where is that money really going? I mean, big hospitals that are very profitable have taken in a lot of money. But just slightly off from that, Trump recently gave the impression to kids across America that, oh, never mind if a drug is prescribed by a doctor or not. Just 
go ahead and take it. You know, the uh, uh, hydroxychlor, whatever that's called, quinine, whatever. And when it comes to laws he doesn't like, Trump gives the impression, eh, it's okay to ignore the laws. He, for example, he called for the liberation of three states whose governors he doesn't like relative to the coronavirus uh, controls. He encourages the flaunting of health rules in effect uh, to stop the spread of uh, coronavirus. Disrespect for government. This strikes me as something new and remarkably dangerous. I wonder if you could talk about this, please. Yeah, he, again, he has come from a background not related to government service. Uh, He comes in with a bias against um, the bureaucracy, which he isn't the first president to to do that. Ronald Reagan came in and you remember famously said government is not the uh, solution is the problem, problem, not the solution. Uh, I doubt that many Americans would agree with that today where the government has bailed out and provided the, the, you know, stability and wherewithal to survive the pandemic, I think those attitudes could change. Mm-hmm. But this is just one more example of someone who, and and by the way, it's not restricted to the United States. It's happening all over the world mm. in liberal democracies of all kinds, whether you look at Poland, whether you look at Brexit, whether you look at, at uh, Five Star in Italy, whether you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, I mean, this is this is something that is not unique yeah. to the United States or to Trump. And again, I think Trump is a symptom, not a cause, right. of the breakdown in precedent, if you will, uh, and and regular order. And so he he simply is reflecting what I think is a global trend. Yes. Yeah, and there's Viktor Orban, another wonderful guy in the, in the country, in the nation of Hungary. And, uh, yeah, and the, and the, you know, the legal restraints, the, the European Union has j- just, uh, you know, sanctioned Poland for firing all their judges or threatened to. Mm. Uh, the same things happen in Hungary. Um, and so... Uh, this is this is a world this is a worldwide trend. Well, of course, there was the League of Nations, which uh, was ignored uh, to uh, to our great uh, disaster. Now, Nixon was about to be impeached. Bill Clinton was impeached, and I believe both men argued that they were protected by executive privilege. The case involving former counsel to the president, Don McGahn. There's so much that has gone on regarding who can access records. I wonder if you could remind the listeners that, about the Don McGahn case, yes. who that was, uh, and why this, why Congress wants to talk to him, where it stands, and what's important mm-hmm. about it. So Don McGahn was the president's counsel uh, for a good part of the, the first term, um, and mm. he left. He he. Uh, and this is an interesting part of the case from a legal perspective. He he was deposed or interviewed by the special counsel, Robert Mueller, for something like 28 hours right. and fully given full uh, access by the White House. And he spoke to, to Mueller and then he, he left the White House staff and the Congress, the House of Representatives committee wanted to the Judiciary Committee wanted to either depose him in private or call him to a hearing. And he and the Justice Department asserted executive privilege. And, th- and this is actually the one case where they have 
asserted executive privilege with respect to someone who actually served in the White House and in, in, a, in a formal governmental capacity. Um, and so that case is was in the uh, in the district court and in the court of appeals, and a panel of the uh, court of appeals, including the judge who held for the Judiciary Committee to get access to the grand jury materials, essentially ruled against the House and basically dismissed the case on procedural grounds and said, didn't reach the question of whether he was privileged or or whether his uh, testimony could be sought consistent with executive privilege. The judges simply said, this is a, what the courts call a political question. This is a, a question not suited to Article Three courts, case or controversy requirements, and we're going to dismiss this case and remit the the parties, the president and the Congress, to their other remedies. Um, uh. Now, their other remedies are appropriation power, confirmation power, all the other things that the Constitution gives the Congress. To be candid, those aren't very effective uh, alternatives uh, because they're very cumbersome. And what, yeah. the, what the Congress would essentially have to do is turn the grind the government to a halt to um, exert that kind of pressure. Right. And, of course, in a situation in the Congress which is split in control between Democrats and Republicans, that's almost impossible to imagine happening. So those remedies aren't realistic in this case. Boy, it sure would be good to see what. Trump and Don McGahn actually talked about, it. and you know, I, I, I like the idea of uh, you know transparency. Didn't Trump say something about that this was going to be the most transparent presidency ever? Huh. Yeah, that didn't quite well, happen. Well, you know, they all say that. That's true. Um, and again, this is something I point out to my law students. There, there is a part of Trump which is new and unique, and there's a part right. which is the same old thing. Right. The part that is the same old thing is every president um, espouses transparency, openness. I, I <laughs> give the one one example of Bill Clinton who came in and said, you know, I'm going to be uh, clean as a whistle and I'm going to prohibit prohibit my people when they leave the White House from being employed by a foreign principal, either a country or a company, uh, for four years. And I'm I'm laying that down as an executive order. It's going to apply to every one of my people. And everybody wrote it up and huzzah for right. Clinton. And then a month before he left office, he repealed the executive order <laughs> because his staff ran in and told them they couldn't get jobs if they were under a prohibition, an executive order, um, to be hired by all these foreign principals. So he repealed it. Uh, the practice of the law is such fun. It really, I, I find it that way, really. And on executive privilege, is there a clear definition of executive privilege? Does a president have absolute immunity? Some heavy words there. What, what, answer no. that if you would, please. Well, he has, of course, until the Nixon case in 1974, there was no Supreme Court case articulating the parameters of executive privilege, although it had been asserted by presidents and contested by Congress for 200-odd years. Uh, and what the court said in Nixon was very narrowly, the president has a presumptive privilege. That is, it can be overcome. He has a presumptive privilege 
for his conversations and communications mm-hmm. with his closest aides. Mm-hmm. That was the limit of the Nixon case. And then subsequently, in a bunch of civil lawsuits that were filed by uh, a guy, a whistleblower named Ernie Fitzgerald, who exposed mm-hmm. the cost overruns in the C5A program and sued Nixon for retaliating against him mm. uh, as a government employee, the court said the president is absolutely immune when he acts within the outer perimeter of his line of duties and disciplining or sanctioning people who work for the government is within the outer perimeter. And so he's protected there civilly. Um, and that's the limit pretty much of, of what exists. Um, again, in the Paula Jones case, the court determined not to extend that to civil a civil litigation that predated the president's holding office. Right. So that's the general parameters, and a lot of what Trump is pressing is not been decided. Right. So there's subpoena power. The Congress has subpoenaed this or that bunch of different things, and if if an average American citizen were to defy a congressional subpoena, could they not be arrested by the House or Senate sergeant at arms? And what if, what if the president just ignores the subpoena? Mm-hmm. Can they go and arrest him? Well, <laughs> seems sort of impractical. You know, but... the, 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 again, you have to separate the, the reality from the perception. Uh, and the reality is, as I tell my clients and my students, subpoena is just a piece of paper summoning someone to produce documents or testimony. It has to be enforced. How does it get enforced? It gets enforced by a court, which has to decide the legal limits and legitimacy of the subpoena or whether someone has a privilege, Uh, uh attorney-client privilege. And so private citizens who, who, uh, you know, resist congressional subpoenas, can be cited for contempt and referred to the U.S. Attorney for Prosecution. Um, In the 50s and 60s, during the so-called Red Scare, there were scores of those cases, um, as I tell my students. Most of those were either reversed on appeal or not, uh, you know, acquittals were gotten. There are a few famous ones where convictions were sustained. But the courts had not been very charitable towards Congress in their criminal prosecution of contemners, mm. where the contemner has some legal or constitutional basis for resisting the subpoena. So that's how they get enforced to the average citizen. As to the president, uh, what we're watching now are the limits of congressional subpoena power vis-a-vis the president. He has claims. He has defenses. He asserts them. It goes into court. And it goes into the, you know, the abyss of litigation. <laughs> That's <laughs> the abyss of litigation. Very expensive and long-lasting abyss yeah. of litigation. What is it? Well, what about the firing of inspector generals? I mean, that brings up the firing of Archibald Cox by Richard Nixon. What, he's, uh, Trump has fired a bunch of inspector generals. I guess he can legally do this. Is it just a political issue? Yes. Because uh, under an old case, 1926, Myers versus the United States, the president, as the head of Article Two, and as in, in you know, pursuance of his, uh, in the words of Nixon, his status as the chief law enforcement officer uh-huh. of the United States, which 
whatever your political view is, Trump occupies that position, um, has the right to dismiss executive branch appointees, principally the heads of the, the big yeah. 12, uh, you know, department, state, uh, treasury, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so he ha- he, the statute is written in a way which says that these are people who are supposed to be politically you know, nonpartisan and have special skills in accounting, financial management, law, uh, investigations. Uh, but, you know, those are largely precatory. I mean, what is the enforcement mechanism right. if the president appoints somebody who the Congress thinks doesn't fit into that box? Very difficult. So – as things stand now, and people are starting to look at this, people in the Congress and elsewhere are saying, well, what limits could you place on the president's ability to dismiss uh, officials? Very little. If there are Article II executive branch officials, I don't think you can condition the president's ability to fire them. You may be able to write in some requirements of notice, as they did with the inspectors general, which he, he has – somewhat ignored the question is always well how do you enforce any of that all right yeah that is difficult to enforce it that's for sure um so the constitution says the executive has to consult with congress but no but that's it's really unclear as to what the heck that means well only only uh with respect to um the confirmation of uh you know the advice uh, and consent power yeah the the consultative uh process between Congress and the president is largely informal right. and largely one that grow, has grown up over time. And again, what has been considered the regular order uh, has been a bit torn asunder by this president's decision not to follow the norms or the precedents and, and assert his own his own view of the world. And the question is, how does that get confronted by Congress and or the right. courts? And that's what we're watching. And we won't know the answer to that for a while. For a long time, perhaps. Right. And and what about uh, the Attorney General? I mean, Nixon had his buddy, John Mitchell, uh, and this we have this uh, Barr fellow there, and a lot of the people who work at the Department of Justice have been rather upset by what he does. But what is, and there's, I think, confusion as to what power the attorney general has versus the courts he can state his opinion right i mean can he uh well he's he's executing the law enforcement powers that are devolved on the president through the constitution now he's circumscribed in that to some degree by the terms of the statutes uh but again he has broad discretion and and this is another issue a legal issue which has come to the fore with the General Flynn proceedings right. and a lot of the other things that have come up, which is there are the political appointees in the Department of Justice, not just the Attorney General, but the heads of the divisions, right. the sure. Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, etc. And then there are the professional career lawyers. And what is happening here is, what is happening throughout this presidency, is a conflict between the professional line attorneys who have enforced these statutes in some cases for decades confronting the political appointees who are taking a different view and a different approach and clashing with Mm. the lower downs as to what is the appropriate interpretation of the law and that's what we're watching play out in the Flynn case among others 
and these professionals, these people who are not political appointees necessarily, Trump, of course, vilifies them as the deep state, which, of course, is, in my opinion, nonsense. They're, they know what they're doing. They're professionals. Well, back to the beginning, just for the ender here. The separation of powers, this is at the bedrock of our republic. Uh, can we uh, depend on the courts to check the power of the president? Any guesses as to how the Supreme Court uh, will rule, uh, or even if they'll take the cases involving the president? Well, we have some indications. We don't have a lot. We have the Obamacare case where the court sided with the you know sided with Congress. Right. We have the uh, census case where again Chief Justice Roberts joined the liberals and struck the citizenship question oh, right. from the census. Uh-huh. So there's some there's some early, you know, uh, sightings, if you will, of some. Uh, of some judicial independence at the Supreme Court level. At the lower court level, we've seen it rampantly. I mean, we have decisions on sanctuary cities. Yeah. We have decisions on the uh, lower, we have lower court decisions on the travel ban. Uh, we have all kinds of uh, lower court decisions. We just had one very important yesterday, a case that I followed closely for my class. Uh, when the state of Florida passed a referendum to uh-huh. permit felons to vote, mm-hmm. and the state uh, legislature circumscribed it in a way that the court found was unconstitutional, so so the lower courts are are drawing some lines. Some of those have been sustained in the Supreme Court, some have not. Again, it's going to take a while for all this to play out yeah. for us to see where this ends up in the end of this year, and conceivably the end of the second term. Oh, I don't like to hear those words, second term. (laughs) Not that I'm politically biased or anything, but thank you so much. (laughs) Very uh, uh, informative and uh, some degree of hope that maybe, maybe justice will be served. It can happen. Stan Brand, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Keeping democracy alive. Thank you. Okay. I'm 